Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm your host, Fred Dews. If you have any feedback on the show or questions for previous guests, please send an email to bcp at brookings.edu. After the interview, listen to our new segment, Wessel's Economic Update, in which Hutchins Center on Physical and Monetary Policy Director David Wessel asks, shouldn't we be thinking about ways to quicken the pace of economic growth? And then learn about a new blog series on the upcoming midterm elections. My guest today is Isabel V. Sawhill. She wears many hats here at Brookings, Senior Fellow in Economic Studies, Co-Director of the Center on Children and Families, and Co-Director of the Budgeting for National Priorities Project. She also helped found and is President of the Board of the National Campaign to Prevent Teen and Unplanned Pregnancy. The CV of her professional background, publications, and activities spans 24 pages. Welcome to the show, Belle. Thanks, Fred. Nice to be here. Our conversation today centers around your new Brookings Institution Press book, Generation Unbound, Drifting into Sex and Parenthood Without Marriage. It's a deep pool of fascinating analysis, data, and ideas, and I want to play a piece of tape to help us dive into it. It doesn't help matters when primetime TV has Murphy Brown, a character who supposedly epitomizes today's intelligent, highly paid professional woman, mocking the importance of fathers, by bearing a child alone and calling it just another lifestyle choice. That was then-Vice President Dan Quayle in 1992 criticizing fictional TV investigative journalist and news anchor Murphy Brown. And two years ago, you wrote a piece in the Washington Post titled, 20 Years Later, It Turns Out Dan Quayle Was Right About Murphy Brown. Bell, why was he right? He was right because he was talking about the uh, impact on children of the breakdown of the family. And certainly my research and a lot of other research has shown over time that two married parents are the best environment for kids, on average anyway. Obviously, we all know single parents who are doing a great job. And I thought that he was right to be sending a um, different signal than the one coming from Murphy Brown. But Murphy Brown was a fictional character, and she was also, in her fictional life, a professional woman who had a very good income and lots of education and other resources with which to raise a child. So she's not really uh, emblematic of what we're seeing uh, now. Right. And those distinctions really matter in the thesis of your book. Can you explain why? I think that the thing we need to recognize is that for all the talk about income inequality and the gaps that are arising there, there are also gaps in education and there are gaps in family structure and in parenting styles that are also creating very unequal starts for American children. So if we're worried about a class divide in American society, a growing class divide, and I am worried about that, then we need to be worried not just about income, but also about the different environments in which children from low and high income families are being raised. So Generation Unbound, drifting into sex and parenthood without marriage. What do you mean by drifting? Drifting is my way of talking about not having a plan not being sure whether you really want children or not, being quite ambivalent about it, perhaps not wanting a child at all or feeling that uh, any pregnancy is coming way too soon in your life. And uh, what we're seeing is that this is uh, very widespread, this kind of drifting. 
amongst unmarried 20-somethings. They are uh, drifting into relationships, and then they are drifting into parenthood. And they are, as a result, uh, quite unready in many cases to really take on the most important responsibility anyone undertakes as an adult, which is to raise another human being. I'm going to drop some data from your book. About 70% of unintended pregnancies are to unmarried women under 30. Did I get that right? Not quite. 70% of all pregnancies to unmarried women under 30 are unplanned, are unintended, either unwanted or came uh, too soon. And that's what I mean by drifting. So drifting is very, very common. Uh, We all make mistakes. And so I'm not saying that we can expect uh, people to always do it right. But when 70% of them are having these unintended pregnancies, and 60% of them, by the way, are having births that were unintended. Uh, That's not an auspicious beginning for any child, and it's not good for the adults involved either. You've also noted that 40%, over 40% of all children, all children in America are born outside of marriage. That's right. I think that's a statistic that many people haven't focused on. Uh, It means that Unwed childbearing is getting close to being the new normal. For women under 30, the proportion of all children born outside of marriage is now over 50%. So we're at kind of a tipping point here in our society about whether marriage is going to be the standard way to raise children or whether it's going to be um, most of them are going to be raised outside of marriage. The book is full of fascinating data. Um, also, our website has a, a page that has some really excellent data charts on it that people can share. You observe that uh, 72% of black children are born outside of marriage today and 36% of white children. Both the numbers are increasing over time, are they not? Absolutely. They've, uh, they've been increasing. And uh, there is a big racial gap and has been for a long time. But I think that the gap that I see that's even more important is the class gap. Uh, One of the reasons rates are so high amongst African Americans is because they tend to be lower income and and less educated still. But there is a a racial divide as well. Now, a lot of these uh, unintended pregnancies and unintended childbirths are to single women versus women who are in relationships or who are already married. Uh, Can you talk about your findings on the sort of different categories of where women find themselves when they become pregnant and have children? Uh, That's an important question because it turns out that many of these unmarried women uh, are having children with a partner that they may be living with at the time the baby is born. In fact, many of them are. But by the time the child is uh, age five, most of those cohabiting relationships have broken up. So cohabitation, uh, to some people, is just marriage without a piece of paper. And they say, well, what's wrong with that? And my answer is uh, nothing is wrong with it if it's a stable, committed relationship. But too often it's not, as you can tell uh, from this statistic about how many break up within a relatively short period of time. And sometimes, in many cases, the cohabiting partner is the father of that particular child, and yet they still break up. Most of the time, the cohabiting partner uh, is the father of the child, and then he often leaves, and then there may be a new uh, partner, 
and a new child from the um, new relationship, and the mother may do the same thing. So we not only have a problem of these couples breaking up, but we have them forming new partnerships and having additional children with the new partners. And I call that the um, marriage go-round, or rather I should say Kathy Eden calls it the marriage go-round. I have sometimes called it musical partnerships. Wow. We could go in so many different directions here. I want to go back to what you said a minute ago about the the most important gap is the class gap. Can you uh, describe that a little bit more, class in terms of of what, and, and how do we see that playing out in the country today? Well, let's take education as a convenient marker of what we sometimes mean by class. Uh, It's correlated with many other things, but let's focus on education. If you are a college graduate, I mean, if you have a BA degree, your chances of having a child outside of marriage are really very small. Uh, The rate there is only about 12%. But if you have a high school degree and only some college, and even more so if you haven't even graduated from high school, then the rates are very high. They're more like 60% of babies are born outside of marriage. So this is not just a problem for the very poor. This is a problem that has moved up the socioeconomic scale. Uh, After all, college graduates are only about a third of the population. The other two-thirds of the population are now drifting uh, most of the time. Let's focus then on the impact on children. As, as you've observed, as many people have observed, children don't get to pick their parents. Uh, and more and more, you and colleagues are seeing children born into the environment that we have today. What are some of the impacts on those children? On average, children are better off if they have two uh, stably committed parents. Uh, We know that from a ton of research now, and there's a consensus within the social science community uh, that uh, married parenthood is is better when when you have it. The consequences for children are uh, all across the map. The children of single parents, they don't do as well in school. Uh, They don't do as well in life. They are more likely to be involved in crime or to become a teen parent themselves. So this is a a problem. Uh, The big debate is about why should it be uh, more advantageous for a child to grow up with two, uh, two biological married parents. And I think the the answers there are less clear, but one factor is is that married parents have more income. There are two of them, uh, so they can have two paychecks, and they also have more time. Uh, and for those and other uh, reasons that are less clear, the children in those families uh, do better, even after adjusting for lots of other differences between married and unmarried parents. And just to underscore, uh, you're emphasizing the marriage part because your research does show, as you mentioned a few minutes ago, that cohabiting committed parents but who aren't married break up more often than married couples, right? Right. But what about um, two same-sex married parents who are raising a child now? By definition, at least one of them is not going to be the biological parent of the child. 
What does the research show on that question? Uh, we don't have very much research on that question for the obvious reason that marriage hasn't been legal for um, same-sex couples. And we, we simply don't, we don't know a lot. Uh, there have been a few studies which suggest that uh, it doesn't make a lot of difference. You have some of the same instability affecting those children's lives because most of them right now are the product of a prior relationship that might have been a, an opposite-sex relationship. Those are children who are left over from those prior relationships, so they've been through a certain amount of changes in, in, the, in their family environments as a result. So we don't know a lot yet. I, I would argue that the one thing we do know about same-sex couples is that if they decide to have a child, it's going to be a wanted child. Uh, there are no um, accidental pregnancies between same-sex couples. So that should really be good for children. You know, one of the things that I, I really uh, loved about this book as I read it is, is that you go into such depth on some of the, um, the reasonings and the counterfactuals and this point that you just made about same-sex couples and the data and the possible explanations, I, I just think is, is wonderful. Thank you. You know, can I say one more thing Absolutely. about that? Uh, one of the fascinating questions to me is that we have a, a kind of experiment going on right now in terms of looking at how same-sex couples decide to divide up uh, tasks within the family. And without there being any uh, preordained notion about uh, gender roles. And uh, it's interesting to see how that's being handled. And it turns out it's being handled in, as you'd expect, a diversity of ways. In some cases, uh, both are working. Uh, in some cases, one person is staying home and taking more of the responsibility for domestic chores. And uh, so it's going to be a very interesting uh, to, to watch how that evolves. Well, uh, your, your comment there about gender roles takes me to this concept that you talk about in the book uh, where you have in the cultural debate and the social debate, you have the village builders. It takes a village uh, who are usually on the left or the progressive side and tr the traditionalists. It takes a family usually on the conservative or the right side. And I, and I would think that the idea of traditional gender roles plays some part also in, in that construct. Can you talk about the, the two sides? Uh, yes. Uh, I think that uh, many conservatives are quite upset about the decline in marriage. They correctly argue that it's leading to a lot more child poverty than we would otherwise have. Uh, I estimate, for example, that the child poverty rate is 20 to 25 percent higher right now than it would be if we still had the marriage rates of, that we had back in 1970. Uh, so they're right about their diagnosis. Their problem is they haven't been able to come up with anything much in the way of solutions. Uh, marriage education programs, uh, reducing penalties in the tax system for marriage, uh, those have really not moved the needle uh, very much, if at all. On the left, you have a group of people who say, look, um, these single parents are here to stay, and they have children, and we care about children, and if we want to do well by our kids, we've got to invest more uh, in these uh, kids and in their families and provide them the kind of supports they need, whether it's subsidized childcare or a higher minimum wage or something else. 
Uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with uh, either view, uh, but I am not optimistic that either one really is going to solve the problem. Uh, although if people had more economic opportunity, they might get married a little more. They might be less likely to have a unintended pregnancy. But uh, I think we, we need a third solution. And the third solution is what I call changing drifters into planners. Uh, we need to have people take um, responsibility and make explicit choices about when to have children, whether to have children, who to have children with, and not to treat it so casually. Because after all, um, children are what should matter for the future, and we're not doing the best job we could with our kids if we aren't taking those decisions as very serious. So how do we do that? How do we pursue uh, this third solution, this uh, path, in, in fact, between the two camps? Right. Turning, turning um, drifters into planners is the way I summarize it. Uh, one way is to simply impress upon people that we need a new social norm. Uh, the old social norm was don't have a child outside of marriage. Uh, the new social norm needs to be don't have a child unless you want, you and your partner want and are ready to be parents. That new norm can be greatly facilitated if more people would take advantage of more effective forms of birth control. Uh, we now have uh, forms of birth control that reduce the risk of having an unplanned pregnancy dramatically. Uh, let me give you some data on that. If you and your partner are using a condom, let's say over five years, at the end of that period, your risk of getting pregnant uh, is 63%. Uh, if you are on the pill and you and your partner are having sex for a five-year period, your probability of getting pregnant is 38%. If you are using an IUD, which is a form of long-acting reversible contraception, uh, your risk of getting pregnant after five years is only 2%. These are huge differences, and yet we haven't done enough in this country to both inform women about their birth control choices, make them accessible, and make them affordable. At the same time, we saw this summer that in the Supreme Court's Hobby Lobby decision, the plaintiffs, um, Hobby Lobby and uh, there was a few other ones, are specifically against covering IUDs in their health policies. Uh, that's correct. And I think that this is a very um, contentious issue right now. Uh, there are some people who believe that an IUD is uh, something that causes an abortion. I don't think that's where the uh, bulk of the scientific evidence would lead you, but people who have that belief uh, want to um, not allow employees of their company uh, to have access to all forms of contraception. And so we have both the issue of when does life begin, and we have also the issue of should uh, you as an employer who may have certain religious beliefs be able to 
have those beliefs affect what kind of birth control your employees can get. I've even seen uh, that some conservatives, I think Governor Bobby Jindal proposed this, have suggested that birth control just become an over-the-counter drug that you can just get at the, uh, at the pharmacy. And yet some conservative organizations have even criticized that, claiming that uh, IUDs and other devices can cause health uh, problems. I think it's a good idea to uh, make more birth control available over the counter. There's been a debate about whether to make emer emergency, so-called emergency contraception or Plan B, available over the counter, and we've done that now uh, for most people except the youngest. The main uh, argument against uh, making uh, birth control available over the counter is that it would not then be covered by your health insurance plan. So the cost would be put back on the uh, woman's shoulders uh, to pay for, let's say, the pill or whatever other form she was using. Another area of um, activity to try to reduce unplanned pregnancies has to do with um, sex education in schools. And, and I bring that up because I, I observed in your data that the incidence of teen pregnancy uh, while it rose a lot, it's actually gone back down over the years, and it's about the same as it was uh, 30 or so years ago. Whereas well, actually lower. Lower. And so it's, it's, we're talking about the post-school generation of young women. So sex education in school wouldn't necessarily even be, uh, I guess, the right solution for today's problem. Uh, that's exactly right, but uh, we should pause and celebrate about the fact that we've had so much progress on reducing um, teen pregnancy and teen births. Uh, they, ha they are at their lowest level since we first started recording the data uh, right after World War II. So that's a success story, but as you just indicated, the problem has moved up the age scale. 20-somethings uh, are the new teens, the ones who are having very high rates of unintended pregnancies outside of marriage. And so that's where we need to focus uh, our attention now. On the sex education question, uh, I think that uh, we need to move beyond thinking about sex education always occurring in a classroom. Where do young people get their information nowadays? They get it online. And so I call uh, online uh, sites that are providing them with good information, good accurate information, uh, sex ed for the 21st century. Uh, an organization that I have an affiliation with and I'm on the board of called the National Campaign to Prevent Teen and Unplanned Pregnancy, uh, they have a website that's called bedsider.org. And you can go onto that site and not only find out all the facts that you need about available birth control, but also where to get it uh, in your uh, neighborhood. So this is going to make a difference over time. Well, I hope a lot of teenagers are listening to my uh, podcast here, but I will definitely put bedsider.org in the show notes. And I'm also now thinking about uh, teenagers are getting information from shows like MTV. Uh, and going back to that Murphy Brown culture question, there is whatever is going on in today's culture, there's that MTV show, 16 and Pregnant. What, uh, what effect is a show like that, I think there's another one on MTV, having on um, the rates of teenage pregnancy? Uh, these shows can have a big impact. Uh, 16 and Pregnant, the MTV show, has been uh, researched by uh, my colleague here, 
uh, Melissa Carney and another uh, professor, and they have shown that that show all by itself has reduced uh, the teen pregnancy rate by uh, uh, quite a lot. And this is a big surprise to many people. It's uh, less of a surprise to me because I have thought for a long time that we needed to move from classroom instruction to using new media, uh, Hollywood, television, online sites, social media uh, to get the word out about these issues. Let's go on to what you've called and and, uh, your colleagues, uh, including Ron Haskins and others, have called the ideal sequence. Education, work, marriage, and then children. It's something that you've also described in the Social Genome Project. Can you talk about what that is? Uh, Yes. We call this the the success sequence, and uh, you described it well, Fred. It's uh, first you finish school, uh, then you get a job, then you get married, and finally you have kids. If you do all of those things, uh, your chances of being poor are very, very slim. You will likely be able to achieve a middle-class lifestyle if you follow the success sequence. And, of course, planners are following the success sequence. It's the drifters who are not. And that's another reason that I wrote this book, because uh, at the same time that a variety of social programs are lifting children out of poverty, uh, this kind of drifting is uh, pushing more into poverty. So we have kind of a tug of war right now between uh, social programs that are intended to reduce poverty and inequality and this breakdown in the family, which is moving us in the other direction. And we have kind of a stalemate right now between the two. And I think we need to move on, uh, work on both fronts simultaneously. Uh, There isn't going to be the motivation to worry about planning your family if you don't see any future. So we do have to work on the the opportunity agenda. On the other hand, uh, the opportunity agenda without the uh, kind of planning and personal responsibility that goes with being a planner isn't going to work either. I wanted to uh, ask you, and it's it's the kind of question I I like to ask economists like yourself, is... uh, People listen to this podcast, they read your book, they watch your video online, they, they explore this topic. They think in the, in the personal, in the anecdotal. Maybe a lot of single moms will hear this and they'll say, I'm doing just fine. Or I didn't, uh, I didn't finish my education, but I, I, I started a business. Uh, I'm not married, but I have a child. What do you say about that kind of reaction, which is perfectly valid because people's experiences are what they are? as compared to what you see in the mass of data that you look at? It's a really, really important uh, question because as social scientists, we do tend to deal with aggregates. We do tend to say, well, this is true uh, or not on average. But every individual's life is different. Everybody's circumstances are different. And so one should be very cautious about generalizing to individual cases. I do not want to do that. Uh, And I'm really talking about societal trends that need to be addressed if we're going to still be a society in which children have as much opportunity as we can give them, have a strong start in life, have the right kind of family environment to be raised in, and uh, also some government supports as well. 
Now, it's a, uh, again, it's a fascinating book. Uh, I commend it to everybody. I'm sure there's something uh, important that I've missed, Val. Please, if you wanted to finish up with anything, any insight that you want to convey, any other thing you want to say, please, the mic's yours. Well, I think where I finally come out is uh, to argue that if we want more social mobility, more opportunity in America, we have to do uh, two things. First of all, we have to provide the effective programs from early childhood education all the way through a better K-12 through system, more access to college and technical training. We have to do all that, that stuff, but we also have to worry about uh, personal responsibility and whether people are uh, taking charge and not drifting into uh, early childbearing and partnering with people that may not be good, long-term, stable partners. That's great. Powerful, sensible. The book is Generation Unbound, Drifting into Sex and Parenthood Without Marriage by Isabel V. Sawhill. Bell, thank you for this fascinating conversation. Thank you, Fred. And now, Wessel's Economic Update. I'm David Wessel, Director of the Hutchins Center on Fiscal and Monetary Policy. This is my economic update. At the recent meetings of the International Monetary Fund, the managing director, Christine Lagarde, warned that we are on the cusp of what she called a new mediocre, a period of very slow and disappointing economic growth. Now, the U.S. is doing slightly better than many of the other countries of the world, but still we're growing very slowly. Unemployment has come down, but it's still a lot of workers looking for jobs who can't find them, working part-time, and so forth. And an interesting question is how much of this is inevitable and can we do better? In my view, we can do better. I think the Federal Reserve has done a lot to try and get the economy growing, but the rest of the government, the Congress and the President, have been locked in a stalemate that has prevented them from doing what might make the economy grow faster in the near term. One way to look at this is to look at something we did at the Hutchins Center, the fiscal impact measure, which allows us to see whether the government, state, local, and federal, is making the economy better or making the economy worse in the short run. And what we find is, after the big Obama stimulus of 2009-2010, the government actually put the brakes on the economy. Congress, uh, because of the sequester and other spending cuts and tax increases, restrained growth, and state and local governments struggling with their own problems did the same. It's only recently that government policy has moved to neutral. But the question is, why should we settle for neutral? Shouldn't we be thinking about ways to quicken the pace of growth? Maybe a big infrastructure program. That's what Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary, is pushing. Maybe it's some comprehensive tax reform program that unleashes the inefficiencies of the private sector and gets us growing again. The only thing that doesn't make sense is the status quo, which is to do nothing. Finally, a new series of blog posts on the website will focus on the upcoming midterm elections. The series will feature Brookings scholars discussing key policy issues in the election and spotlights from academics on key Senate races. Look to FixGov blog in the last two weeks of October for analysis and insight on November's midterms. That's all for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria. Again, if you have any questions for guests of the podcast or about any of the issues raised, send an email to bcp at brookings.edu. I'll read them and air answers on upcoming shows. The podcast would not be possible 
without the crack production skills of Zachary Kulzer, the logo design of Jessica Pavone, and the web support from Rebecca Beiser and Eric Abalahan. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on iTunes and listen on brookings.edu.